We are wrapping up the fourth episode in our series related to Mental Health Awareness Month. I know it is technically June, but uh, we wanted to release a series of podcasts that celebrate entrepreneurs' efforts to support the mental health and well-being of others. I'm really excited to be able to share today's interview. It is with Amber Capone from Vet Solutions. And Vet Solutions is an organization that helps veterans connect with resources for psychedelic-supported psychotherapy. Amber and her husband, Marcus, founded Vet Solutions after Marcus had a many-year struggle with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, suicidality. He was medically retired after 13 years in multiple combat deployments and service as a U.S. Navy SEAL. Marcus and Amber were pretty desperate for resources to help him find some relief. After trying all of the traditional and some very non-traditional strategies, Marcus and Amber learned about psychedelic-supported psychotherapy that has um, particularly promising research for neuroregeneration, um, something that can help people who've experienced traumatic brain injuries. And there's also really strong support for this approach to psychotherapy being used with post-traumatic stress disorder. Psychedelic-supported psychotherapy is not currently legal in the U.S., although there is very hopeful, strong evidence to suggest that in the next year to 18 months, we will see the FDA approve MDMA-supported psychotherapy for PTSD and psilocybin for treatment of depression. Psychedelic-supported psychotherapies are, however, legal in other countries. And so Marcus and Amber have mobilized their resources and their community to try to make these healing experiences available to as many people as need them. If you are interested in their work, particularly in their focus on reducing the suicide rate among combat veterans, I encourage you to check out their work at vetsolutions.org. This week, we celebrated Memorial Day, honoring those who gave their lives in their service to the country. But it is also worth noting that more veterans die by suicide than die in combat. On average, about 17 veterans die by suicide every day. So I'm really inspired by Amber and Marcus and their work and very delighted to share this conversation with you. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means, sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. I guess I'd, I'd like to start by hearing what kind of pushed you and your partner from this place of being really concerned about the mental health crisis among veterans into a place of deciding we are the people who are going to really actively do something about it? I would say if I had to go back to one point along the way, um, after our own struggles in finding uh, psychedelics or plant medicine ourselves, it was the suicide of one of my best friend's husbands. And 
at his funeral, I was in the same chapel that we had been in for so many war funerals, yet this felt very different. And I was just overcome with this feeling that this would be the next wave of funerals to hit our community if we didn't speak out. Because we knew the power of psychedelics. We just were too afraid to go forward um, because of the stigma and uh, the stigma, not just with psychedelics, but in the SEAL community. And my husband is a retired Navy SEAL. The stigma of saying you need help, that is really, really, really strong. And so when you add that plus psychedelics, plus there's a stigma of like just speaking out in general and like separating yourself from the pack. It was a really big thing for us to even think about doing. And we just decided we're so convicted we have to. Sounds like it, I mean, it was a life or death moment for you. You'd seen all of the, been to all of these war funerals and now you'd been to a funeral of somebody lost to suicide. And of course the epidemic of, of suicide among special forces, among military people more broadly is pretty heartbreaking. It's terrible. And I had felt that way with my own husband. I felt like, you know, it was, it was a matter of time at some point. It just felt inevitable, palpable, yet it also felt preventable. And I wanted to know that I had at least tried everything possible so that I could start forgiving myself on the other side if the worst happened. And I just, you know, I did this for Marcus, of course. I wanted to fight for him and for our children. I didn't want them to carry this in, in their lineage. And um, at the same time, you know, I was fighting for myself. I was fighting for forgiveness for myself because nothing had worked at that point. And I just thought we've got nothing to lose. Yeah. So you'd been on this journey with Marcus. He's obviously had multiple deployments. He's a Navy SEAL. He's sort of been in the the thick of of many of the experiences that can create mental health problems in addition to traumatic brain injuries. And as he was transitioning back to civilian life, you were experiencing him as somebody who was really, really struggling. Totally. It was a, a really challenging combination of delayed trauma or like, you know, trauma that had been band-aided. I think that the trauma from his childhood fueled him in becoming a SEAL. But then, you know, you add childhood trauma, war trauma, head trauma, transition trauma, relational issues, loss of purpose, loss of paycheck, uh, loss of community. And everything culminates when um, a lot of these veterans transition into civilian life. So it's clear, and, and you know, we all, the stats are really well established that people who have had the kinds of experiences that Marcus has had are at risk, really significantly elevated risk for suicide among a whole other list of things, whether that's substance abuse, addiction, and you know, prolonged or chronic PTSD. How did you sort of navigate the conventional treatment options? And then what was the path to really saying, none of this is working, we have to be open to something non-traditional, at least in our medical Western sort of models? something like psychedelics? I was raised in a family that was very rooted in faith. My grandmother was also very kind of outside the box, like a little ahead of her time in terms of trying things that, you know, like acupuncture and chiropractic and supplements. And like, she just was very more natural. And my mom too, in her approach to, to health. 
And so this was in the back of my mind, but I really was more or less like following Marcus's lead in um, his healthcare. And that was very regimented. Like, you know, he was a very good soldier in doing what he was told to do, taking the medicines that he was told to take. And so you just rely on Western medicine to have a solution. And unfortunately, the solution is typically on a prescription pad. And so by the time he had really reached a boiling point, I think he was on 10 different medications. And there were like, you know, there's something to wake up, something to go to sleep, something for mood, something for anxiety, something for headaches, something for nightmares. It's just like, if you can't write a prescription for it, it's, you know, it's not even a consideration. And I finally, I'm like, I've got to take this into my own hands. I've got to do some of these alternative things that I know are very effective. And we tried, you know, various things like float therapy and hyperbaric oxygen therapy and brain magnets and, you know, like some, some more alternative treatments, but really wasn't getting to the core of the problem. And so I really just convinced Marcus to try psychedelics because at that point we had nothing else to lose. But I think in his mind, he's like, well, nothing has worked. Why would I even waste the time? Like, this is going to be like everything else. It's just going to be another thing. He's thinking this is a waste of time. And you're thinking we have nothing to lose. Like, just right. add it to the list of things to try. Yeah. And he was also getting, you know, very, very, very disheartened with all the effort that he was putting in to have nothing on the back end. Like, there was really no relief. If anything, he was more frustrated. So how did you make your way to psychedelics? And obviously you don't need to sort of disclose location and place like that, but like it, it is a big jump from somebody to be a soldier who is again, very used to kind of following the rules, quote unquote, or like following directions, following the chain of command to doing a treatment that although it has, you know, strong research support and increasingly there's a body of research that supports the clinical use of psychedelics, it's still illegal and it still has that sense of like, are we going to get in trouble? Are we okay? It's, it's stigmatized in and of itself. Totally. Honestly, I did not know too much about it. We were in complete desperation mode. One of Marcus's friends had left the country to do this and I didn't understand it. Marcus thought it was totally crazy. I'd actually approached him about this a year prior and he was like not even considering it. He's like, that is weird. That is the drugs. I'm not going to Mexico. This country has the most advanced healthcare in the entire world. If I can't get help here, where do you think I'm going to get help in Mexico? And over time, you know, everything else was not working. And so I think he just also thought, well, I've got nothing to lose and it'll shut up, uh, shut me up. (laughs) (laughs) I get, he'll get my wife off my back. Like that's the real motivator, right? (laughs) She'll leave me alone if I just do this. I think you're right. And, um, you know, of course, there was that inherent trust that existed only within two teammates who, you know, served on the same battlefield. And Marcus just really respected him and trusted him and I trusted him. And so without really any knowledge of what we were getting into, he left for Mexico. And then, you know, the rest is history. He had like an immediate sense of relief, like a million pounds lifted. He was clearer cognitively. He was present. He just, he was like, the old essence of his himself that I met in 1997. So we'd been together before he was a SEAL and before 9-11 and before the wars overseas and before all of the pain and trauma that had manifested over the course of, at that point, 20 years, he was like immediately taken back to the same sort of countenance and demeanor that I met and fell in love with. And he had become a total monster. So it was just like, what just happened? This is crazy. 
And it sounds like it was like a pretty fast change. I mean, it just was like, oh my goodness, I recognize you again back from, back from before all the trauma. Those days were so special. And, you know, I always go back to the feeling, especially on the tougher days, but I think it's important to highlight the tougher days because psychedelics can really unlock a lot of repressed trauma that has to be dealt with. And so, yeah, it's often worse before it gets better or it gets better and then you have to dive in and yeah, it's not linear, not linear at all. I, I typically equate it to a stock market ticker as like a series of ups and downs, but over time generally trending upward. And so that for me was the only goal. I, I was really scared initially, like, oh, it's too good to be true. It won't last. Or I always had a bad day. I knew I shouldn't let the guard down. But I saw over time that the bad days were actually serving a purpose. And instead of having a series of bad days or weeks, he would have hours or days. And he was learning to pull himself out. He was learning to rewrite his narratives. Talk to me about how you've... You've taken this experience with Marcus, with you, with your family, but this has become such a huge point of advocacy and community for you. So now that you've you've learned from Marcus's experience, what are, what are you doing with that? How are you kind of bringing these experiences forward for others? The essence of our community is to care for one another and we just understand the struggle. When Marcus was active duty, none of my friends needed to ask me if I needed help or I, you know, they knew, you knew when you're, you, you know, when your friends need you. They didn't do the, like, let me know if you need anything. Oh, like no. you just don't, you don't even say that, right. You just show up. No, you just show up and you just do. And so the, one of the very first things Marcus said to me after his journey was, this is exactly what his teammates needed. And so what we thought was going to start with just our friends became their friends and it just kind of like morphed out from there. It became all SEALs. It became East Coast and West Coast. It became all of Naval Special Warfare and then all of Special Operations. And so, you know, the beautiful thing is that people still care about one another so much and that community is still so strong that for every one person we provide funding to, they refer two to five back. So it's just created this incredible demand that we simply can't meet. Chad's death, my, my that, that I referenced earlier, the suicide death, that was a huge turning point where we realized that, you know, we would have to go against community standards to some extent and speak out because it was a matter of life and death. And then as we spoke out, more and more people were reaching out like, oh, I thought I was the only one struggling. Oh, I could never talk about this. I don't want people to know these things about my family. And I was getting all these inbounds of people that had exactly the same story, exactly the same struggle, yet no one was talking about it. So as we normalized talking about it, the need grew and grew and grew. And then it became obvious that we were not going to be able to meet the need from a funding perspective because it was really, you know, it's really tough to, nature of a nonprofit is tough. You don't have a product. You're not selling something. You're in the business of helping people. And in this case, you're sort of moving money around, right? Totally. Totally. In this case, you know, it was, it was the business of saving lives. You really can't put a price on that yet. It is, there is a price tag for it because you've got to be able to provide the funding for these opportunities to exist. And these opportunities happen out of the country. Often it's not just sort of like a one day trip. These are, no. these are expensive experiences. 
Yeah, it's several thousand dollars. Then you add, you know, the coaching costs because we want to provide a wraparound support system. So it's the preparation before, it's the integration after, it's group, it's community, it's travel support. It's all the things that, you know, take a pretty heavy lift. So we started speaking out. And of course, then that has created even more need and more awareness. And so then we feel a real responsibility that anyone who is pursuing psychedelics as a true form of healing really needs to be supported. And the best way to do that is through you know, access in the United States. And that is only made possible by changing policy. And that is only made possible by robust advocacy. So we're just you know, setting our sights on a particular target and then working backwards from that. If we want to change law, we have to have the voices and we have to have the science. And so you create the voices through funding these opportunities. And you've also got to simultaneously be supporting science happening in the United States. So our three pillars are resources, research, advocacy, with the ultimate goal of changing policy. And are you working with particular medicines at this point? So for those who may not be familiar, you know, uh, MAPS is one organization that's working a lot with MDMA, doing a lot, a lot of research to change the kinds of policies that you're talking about. There's work happening with psilocybin, but my understanding is you're working a bit with Ibogaine. Yeah, most of our grant recipients are choosing to do the exact same protocol that Marcus did, which was Ibogaine and 5-MeO-DMT. We don't prescribe, diagnose, recommend. We just give resources and educational tools and then let veterans decide what therapy is right for them. And depending upon their personal choice, maybe they don't want to leave the United States so they're either going to do you know, a trial stateside or ketamine. Maybe they want a, a ceremonial setting. So maybe that looks like ayahuasca or psilocybin. Maybe they have an addiction issue or severe TBI concerns. That would potentially be Ibogaine. So it's, it's really customized to whatever that person needs. And then we provide the funding in the form of a check to support them. So we're not providing treatments. We're not even paying directly for the treatments. We're supporting the veteran's choice in seeking them. You're not making travel arrangements. You're just no, sort of here. We're just funding. basically here, here for the funding. And there are six different modalities under our funding umbrella. Ibogaine or Iboga, 5-MeO-DMT, ketamine, psilocybin, MDMA, ayahuasca. So we're providing dollars for either direct support or research for those six. And on average, how much does it cost to support one veteran through their journey? The maximum lifetime award right now for veterans in our program is $5,000. A lot of times they can attend a retreat for $3,500, $4,000, and then they can bank that extra $1,000 uh, you know, for their spouse but generally speaking, like right around $4,000, which is honestly a bargain. It's, it's tough when you're talking about hundreds, but compared to even what we spent on Marcus's failed treatments or pharmaceuticals, it's like pennies. The time and energy too, which, totally. which costs something, right? Totally. <laughs> that has value. Yeah. Mm -hmm. what, what kind of pushback have you experienced or maybe has your organization received? You know... Definitely a lot less than I had anticipated. I don't think that we've experienced any significant pushback to date, knock on wood. Just the stigma, I guess. You know, there's still that stigma. I guess I'm thinking so many of the people in the listenership, 
are entrepreneurs, they're business owners, running companies, could be tech, could be a dentist office, but there are people who are signing their own paycheck. And often there are folks that are on the cutting edge of innovation, right? They're open to non-traditional coloring outside the lines kinds of strategies. What are your sort of thoughts and recommendations around people who are interested in this kind of work, but want to do that safely or want to try to figure out how to access in this murky world? What kinds of things should people consider in their sort of thought process around whether these kinds of treatments are, are good for them? I would say being in a position where you're ready to do some really hard work. I think that part of the stigma or misconception about psychedelics is that it's a way to escape or it's some sort of like palliative, you know, fun opportunity to party or do drugs. It's actually completely opposite. It can really dig up some repressed trauma or create the opportunities to work through pain or, you know, unresolved issues. And I think that for an entrepreneur, you're just being ready for that. You know, I, I feel like, very, you know, very much an entrepreneur as the executive director of, you know, this organization. And I couldn't in good faith with my workload right now, carve out time to really work through this, any sort of deep issue because the organization is depending on me. So I think that being, you know, going into a medicine experience with the proper mindset and like time blocked uh, to be able to really give yourself that time and opportunity to heal is so important. And then having the the preparation and integration support. I know, you know, some CEOs who are like, I want to do psychedelics. It's kind of like all the buzz. And I just, I, right. Sort of like the burning man vibe, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Without having a real understanding of like what they're even getting into and like, okay, well, I can do it this week, but I can only be there Monday through Thursday. And then I've got my annual meeting on Friday. And it's like, you really have to have intention. I also know someone who was in a, like a real big merger and acquisition uh, point in his life and did a journey and it like totally destabilized, yeah, totally destabilizing. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. And I think that's really a good reminder that there's People use psychedelics in all kinds of ways, and sometimes that's recreation, sometimes it's creative insight, but your work is really in healing, and that has a different framing, a different depth, and, you know, different vulnerabilities, so that's a, it's a good reminder. Thank you. Yeah, I, I feel like other than that, you know, just working with a coach, someone who understands these therapies, it's very difficult right now to find you know, a licensed therapist that understands trauma, in our case, understands veterans and understands psychedelics and they're, they're unicorns. But working with someone who understands the integration process is absolutely key. Yeah, absolutely. I was um, reading an article, I don't know, maybe it was nine months ago now, but it was talking about how at this point in sort of American history, this is one of the times where military families are most segmented from non-military families. Like, for example, like a, people who are not in the military don't just don't interact as much with veterans or with military families. Like there's, there's a separation. Have you kind of found that to be the case? Um, I, I definitely can say that when we were a military family, we were very entrenched in our community and didn't really interact with like the civilian world too, too much. 
And then as civilians, especially in the very beginning, I felt very misunderstood by civilians. I felt like we didn't really fit in one way or the other. I think that the difference in military families today is that for some of them, they've been in a period of sustained combat more or less for 20 years. And so, you know, that can be very alienating and that leaves a mark on the entire family, not just the veteran. I guess I I wonder what you wish that the general population sort of understood about the mental health challenges of military families, the veteran and the partner and the children, if, if there are children. I would say that the entire family serves, you know, even if only one family member wears a uniform and that our nation depends on men and women who are willing to step up in service to this nation. I think it's easy to forget and, you know, get so wrapped up in our own daily lives. And like, you know, we live in this crazy era of social media and selfies and self-love and self-admiration. And there are still very selfless individuals that are deploying month in and month out and serving, you know, in service to this nation. And it strikes me that you're, you're very much in service to that same community in the work that you're doing with Vat Solutions. Thank you. Yeah, the, the service mentality and love for one another runs very deep. And when you have felt that level of pain and desperation, you want to do whatever you possibly can to alleviate that suffering or remove you know, that suffering or prevent that suffering from others that you love and respect so much. I think that you know, these families have gone through so much during their time of service that you know, another thing that maybe Americans aren't thinking about is that when someone retires from military service at 20 years or transitions out before that period, they generally have, you know, half or more of their lives left and they have to completely reinvent themselves. And on the heels of two decades, in some cases, of sustained combat, they're exhausted. You know, Marcus was 40 and he was, you know, he had to still provide for a family. He had to, he still had this high level of expectation. And I would say, you know, for the special operations community, like, the world thinks they're superheroes and at the end of the day, they're still human beings and they're still carrying immense invisible and, and physical wounds of their service. So I think that, you know, just better understanding and love and compassion for those that are still serving and those that are transitioning and trying to find this new identity. When you think about what's possible with psychedelic medicines, what are your hopes and fears for the future? as how these unfold? That is such a great question. What I'm seeing organically happen is this like supernatural blessing of light returning, life returning, hope returning, uh, beautiful bipartisanship, something to agree on, healing happening, rippling out into the, the community and society and the whole world. My hope is that 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 light will continue to emerge and become brighter and brighter and that there can be healing in our nation and there can be healing in our world and trauma ceases to exist and the suicide epidemic begins to deteriorate. My fear is that with so much excitement and not enough strategy, this message will become lost in some sort of like rampant 
perceived drug use or, you know, that there will be some sort of a repeat of the Timothy Leary. Just say no version two. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, the, the, my other fear is that as word spreads and you pair a really desperate world with a really efficacious solution that people will not receive the, the prep and integration support. And they think that the medicine is the miracle and not the, the, you know, the creator of the medicine and the hard work that goes into the process. And, you know, there's a beautiful spiritual connection reemerging with the veterans that we serve. And I, I fear that that connection will be lost in the facilitator or the medicine itself, and not really this connection to your fellow human, your connection to spirit and creator and nature and all of the things that could happen. You know, I think that there's a a lack of education in what the therapies do and how they're so effective. I think it's a rocket ship, but some may get lost in that feeling of you know, that afterglow of the medicine and become dependent on that feeling, not realizing that the power lies within them. And in, in the hard work, in the And in the hard work. Yeah. Exactly. It'll, I think it will also be interesting, again, thinking from the entrepreneurial business perspective, how, who holds the access to the medicine will change. You know, right now it is a, a little bit of the Wild West, which is dangerous and good and, you know, just sort of complicated. But as as the medicines are held by potentially pharmaceutical companies and things like that, I think that's, that's also going to be an interesting challenge for the future of this movement to really help people have access in the ways that, that they need, in the ways that are really healing. Right. Sacred. Truly sacred. Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful for your work and for your organization and we'll put, you know, the links to your website and, and that information in the show notes. But if people really want to follow what you're doing, are there ways that they can follow along easily on the internet or, or even potentially donate or get involved? Definitely. Our website is constantly being updated with all of the new podcasts, press opportunities and um, happenings at Vets. Uh, we also have social media platforms like, you know, all the standard ones, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. All the places. <laughs> all the things. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Amber. It's been a delight to have you on the show. And thank you for sharing your experience and for the very, very hard work that you're doing to help folks who are so very deserving of our support. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be on. And um, thank you for the work you're doing. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.